visibility I think is important. It's crucial. People need to see themselves. Um, and also it leads to backlash towards those who are the most vulnerable in the community. Every week on our show, we aim to bring you a candid conversation with a person who's currently shaping our world. So today, I'm thrilled to be talking to Elliot Page. He's a movie star and Academy Award nominee and one of the most famous transgender men in Hollywood. And he's here to tell us about Page Boy, his memoir that was published at the start of Pride Month and which recently became a number one New York Times bestseller. Page burst onto the scene playing a pregnant teenager in the 2007 hit Juno, back when he was perceived as a woman. That movie earned him an Oscar nomination, but the stardom that followed was incredibly difficult. He announced he was gay in 2014 and came out as trans in 2020. And his new memoir details what it's been like for him to embrace his identity in the public eye. This book is such a powerful read, especially now, at a time when trans rights are under attack across the country. I'm Charlotte Alter, senior correspondent for Time, and this is Person of the Week. We spoke with Paige about his current work on the Netflix superhero series, The Umbrella Academy, the rise of anti-trans legislation, and the way that being a star both helped and hindered his journey to self-acceptance. He came to our studio the morning after his book launched, fresh off the thrill of his first event. Can you tell us about a highlight of this week and a low light of your past week? Oh, gosh. Good question. Big highlight was, I guess, the first event last night and getting to do that with Raquel Willis, who's just so phenomenal and so lovely and so funny. And I just feel so lucky that I I got to do that with her and to have so many friends come and support and then all celebrate a bit after together. So that was definitely the highlight. And I guess the other side of the equation is um, (laughs) probably the waves of intense anxiety I was feeling, you know, last week, the moments of just like... (gasps) You know, what have I done? You know, like those, I'd say, natural moments that anybody would feel putting out a book where they talk about their life. Yeah. Um, So your memoir, Page Boy, has been a huge sensation. And Time ran an excerpt. There have been so many great reviews. Why did you think this was the right time to write this memoir? Well, I mean, there was a couple of factors in many ways— It was the first time I was able to even sit down and focus long enough to do such a thing. This would have absolutely been impossible before. And by before, I mean starting my transition, stepping into my truth. Mm -hmm. And that was inconceivable to me to to just be able to sit down for long stretches and create. Hmm. So just that sensation was like exhilarating, you know. Wow, yeah. And in terms of, you know, the timing and now, it did just feel like... I've had this strange life that's led to having this platform that I do have and in a time when, you know, anti-trans rhetoric is just so rife and horrific and lies about our lives and constant dehumanization. For me in, in writing this, it really was about untangling and unraveling so much of what sort of held me back in, mm. in the moments where I wasn't able to be my authentic self, where I wasn't able to step into my truth and 
how horrifically damaging that was and the difficulties that caused and the consequences that were, you know, quite severe in moments. And through all of that, I've finally, you know, gotten to a place in my life where I feel like I'm alive for the first time and thriving and creative and productive and present and feeling a way that I never thought I could experience. So it felt like potentially the the right time to share my story. Yeah. Can you tell me a little more about that, about some of the things that were holding you back from stepping into your truth? You mentioned you were sort of untangling some of those. Sure. I mean, I guess, you know, t- to oversimplify it, I mm-hmm. think it's society, you know, it's <laughs> of course. like toxic ideas and expectations of who we're supposed to be and how we're supposed to act. And I think so much of it comes from familial pressure, obviously the strange job that I do where I was playing female characters and entering this world that put so much pressure on fitting into the expectations of the gender binary, et cetera. So a lot of that was really in so many ways, like as a little kid, I, you know, felt so much like myself, like it felt the absolute truest, which I'm sure lots of people can relate to as well. Yeah. I can even remember being an adult just saying things like, oh, I just wish I could be a 10-year-old boy and like, I was never a girl, I'll never be a woman. And realizing that, oh, I'm talking about the last time that I really actually felt like I saw myself and felt like myself and really knew who I was. Like, I knew it, you know. I played by myself a lot and I think that directly related to knowing who I was and how I felt and how confused I felt by how I was being perceived by others and Mm -hmm. by the world. So I would do something called private play where I just would go off into my bedroom and really be creating the most elaborate scenarios and adventures and loves and always a boy, unequivocally, like never in no space in my mind was I anything but, you know, I'd travel across the lava floor and then write back love letters to my long lost love and signing them love Jason, you know, it was just like creating this space where I could fully feel like I was existing as myself. Mm-hmm. And so I'm wondering when were you first aware that society perceived you as somebody other than who you really were? I think as early as like, you know, preschool. Wow. And just inherently like my earliest memories themselves all correlate to gender and and how I felt and mostly how kind of perplexed I was. Like I just actually couldn't wrap my head around that I was being seen as a girl. It would be like, you know, four years old in preschool and going to the bathroom and trying to pee standing up just because, you know, I just assumed it was the better fit, you know? Yeah. Or just, you know, often too how I felt with my peers. I knew something was different in terms of how I felt and the girls I was around at the time. It was just, there was just something very separate. Mm -hmm. So I want to turn to another thing which shows up a lot in this book, which is music. And you actually even feature a song lyric by singer and composer Beverly Glenn Copeland in the epigraph. Would you mind reading that aloud for our listeners? Yeah, absolutely. So the quote is lyrics from a song of his called A Song in Many Moons. 
This world has many ends and beginnings. A cycle ends. Will something remain? Maybe a spark, once so bright, will bloom again. <sighs> wow. So good. Um, his music I love, and uh, he's a black trans elder. There's a stunning documentary actually called Keyboard Fantasies, I believe, which is the name of one of his albums. And then he's had an extraordinary journey. And that quote, I just deeply related to it. I think, you know, earlier when we were talking about that feeling, that sensation that I would have and just involuntarily find myself going, oh, I wish I could just be a 10-year-old boy. I wish I could just be a 10-year-old boy. I feel like I'm just a... And the more I thought about it, I was like, oh, because that's the last time I had this spark, this knowing, this presence, this really uh, feeling myself, quite frankly, Mm -hmm. you know? And... And finally, I'm feeling that spark again. And like, here we are blooming and thriving. And like, sure, in a time where I do deal with hate, you know, you do deal with a lot of of that kind of negativity, but absolutely nothing compares to how I get to feel now in my body and in my mind and, and in this world. And it's obviously people like Glenn Copeland who have made a world like this possible. Wow. Well, I'm so happy that you're you're feeling part of that spark again. Oh, well, thank you. So why do you think music is so important to you? And, and why did you include so much of it in the book? Hmm. I guess music for me is, there's a way in which I think it's allowed me to connect with myself, you know, not necessarily being able to express what I was really feeling or have the language for it or what have you. And I think through music, through lyrics, there was a way to feel. Hmm. There was a way to, yeah, maybe feel less alone, feel less overwhelmed in the world. Yeah. Um, so what's a song that really like blew your mind the first time you heard it? You know what, actually? I'd say one of the first songs that really, truly blew my mind was Pyramid Song by Radiohead, hmm. which is on their record Amnesiac. And I remember first hearing that I would have been, I guess, 14 or 15 when that record came out. And I actually could not stop listening to it. Wow. Like I'd listen to it before I went to bed. I'd listen when I wake up into the morning, like on the way to school, like at school on my, you know, portable CD player. I mean, that was just the period of falling in love with music, I'd say, Mm -hmm. in general. But that was one of the songs that really started that. And what kind of music are you into more recently? Gosh, I listen to all kinds of different music. I'm always listening to a lot of like 70s ambient, like Brian Eno I love. So I always have that on a lot. A lot of Angel Olsen. I don't know how many times I've listened to Angel Olsen's song Go Home. So, yeah. So if it's okay, I'd like to kind of talk a little bit about your experience in Hollywood, which you discuss a lot in the book, and sort of the pressure to stay closeted. How did you navigate this unbelievable public pressure, and what was your support system like during that time? Um, how did I navigate it? Barely. <laughs> that wasn't an easy time. It's like, how do you even describe, like, navigating something when all you were trying to do was kind of make sure you got from day to day? Mm. And I think 
you know, particularly in that time sort of post Juno and whatnot, I almost felt like, how could you be complaining right now? Like just sort of always berating myself or feeling unhappy, attributing it to not being grateful enough, reprimanding myself for not just snapping out of it. I was just pretty much lost in the closet in many ways. <laughs> um, and I would try and talk to people about it, but I think it didn't really matter what people said to me or people that didn't encourage me to, you mm-hmm. know, be myself or what have you. Like in that period, it just, it felt, it actually felt impossible, quite frankly. Like, yeah, felt impossible to be out, which is ridiculous to think that, you know, now that I believed that, but that is sort of verbatim what I would say to people. Oh, no, that's impossible. I don't think it's ridiculous that you believe that. I mean, you were under an incredible amount of pressure. And it was also a little bit of a different time, which I hope we can talk about in a little while. I want to talk about Juno since um, you just brought it up. But you described the experience of working on Juno as largely positive, but then going through the press cycle as really one of the lowest moments. So why was that? Yeah. It's unfortunate because making it, was a really special experience. It was definitely one of the best filmmaking experiences I've ever had. You know, I felt so lucky to play that character on set was wonderful. The amazing cast, everybody was so heartfelt and genuine and just a tremendous group of people. And I think what was cool is I did get to bring a lot to the table for that film, you know, Mm -hmm. especially how she like how she presented, you know, literally like Mm. taking a producer to use clothing stores in Vancouver. And I think, you know, a certain spark to her and way of existing really reached a lot of people and I think particularly young women. And at a time when that was, you know, fresh in some ways, this character we were getting to see on screen and cut to the film coming out. And then that whole aspect of myself just being told to shove it away, you know, just squash Mm. all of that away, being told to wear the dresses and the heels and not including my girlfriend in any events and not um, really being myself whatsoever. Mm -hmm. And and that's what really did like lead me into a very, very difficult time. Yeah. I mean, obviously already was experiencing lots of discomfort and Congruence in terms of my body and my relationship with it, but uh, yeah, that uh, was not a fun or celebratory period for me. Who was telling you to hide that version of yourself? Because I think you're right that there is a real spark that comes through in that movie, and one of the reasons that it was such an incredible performance and why you were nominated for an Academy Award, and it was just it really spoke to a lot of people, and then it sounds like you were told to hide the spark that made the movie so wonderful. It sounded like you were told to hide that afterwards. So who told you that? Publicist. Yeah. Manager. You know, that yeah. whole thing. Um, yeah. The publicity machine, the Hollywood yeah. machine. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I mean, and this is obviously, you know, you know, deeply problematic, but I do think people in many ways did believe like they had your best interest at heart, you know, oh, we just want you to have all the opportunities, you know, just play the game, that kind of attitude. Mm -hmm. But obviously it's much more than that and incredibly harmful. Mm -hmm. And so were you uh, afraid to not listen to them? Were you afraid that to not take their advice, you would sort of lose 
what you had gained by making this movie? Yeah, I mean, I was new. I'd barely been in the world of Hollywood at all. You know, yeah. I'd done, you know, small part in an X-Men movie, but that was it. So this was whole new territory for me. And I mean, it was basically like Juno came out and that was that. Like people then knew who I was. Like that was a very strange experience. Like, I guess we talk like that actual moment when you go from being, for the most part, anonymous other than the occasional X-Men or person who's seen right. Hard Candy or something to just constantly getting recognized while people are also telling you like people can't know you're gay wear this, look like this, talk like this. And those two things colliding was was just so intense. And I think I already had obviously a lot of shame and, you know, that I was yeah. carrying around. Um, that was starting to evaporate, like, slowly but surely. But I think then I was, like, thrust into that space and I swallowed it all again. Um, so... Why did you ultimately commit yourself to this industry? Did you ever consider doing something else? Well, I definitely considered quitting multiple times. You yeah. Know, like, I actually can't do this. Like, this is making me sick. Right. Like, it sounds like it was making you sick. Yeah. yeah. Um, and there were moments when I really made steps to. I remember in L.A., like, waking up one morning, and no exaggeration, I, like, packed up my apartment and was like, I'm leaving. Like, I'm going back to Nova Scotia. I'm done. Ay. But then I'd always yeah, go right. back, and I think in some ways I didn't I didn't go to university or anything. You know, I was like, mm -hmm. what will I do? What would I study? It? I didn't know. And there was a time and moments in my life where I loved acting so much. Mm -hmm. You know, this whatever this sort of indescribable feeling is of escaping and also aiming to become as present as you possibly can in a moment and creating with another person, with other people, these moments that just like, you know, aren't even what you end up seeing on the screen because it gets, I don't know which take's going to get used. It's right. going to get edited and pieced together. So really just this, experience you have with these individuals where you really just sort of transcend and harness emotion and uh I love it and so a part of me was like almost resenting the fact that like that joy had been taken away and I'd be like no but I actually really love this and so I would keep going back yeah and also why should all of this other stuff surrounding this industry keep you from doing the thing that you love? I think that was also the thing I learned, though, too, was, oh, so much of your job's actually not going to be the acting part. Like, right. when you actually think of, like, how much yeah. of, like, on a day, on a set, on a job of uh, a year, are you actually doing that thing versus then, of course, all the other things that come with it, mm -hmm. which I wasn't familiar with growing up in Canada, you know, because right. it's just not the big machine that Hollywood is. <laughs> right. Yeah. You spent so much time in your career being perceived as a woman and playing female roles and obviously knowing that that wasn't your true self. So what was it like to navigate that distance between how the world and society and also this industry perceived you and who you really were? Um, I mean, it was painful. <laughs> yeah. And also I was 
really confused because people would say this to me and understandably like, well, what do you mean you're an actor? Why can't you just wear that thing? Like you're an actor, isn't that your job? Um, And there were definitely moments where I feel like I absolutely did know, know that I was trans. It was as if I was always talking myself out of it, just Hmm. always finding a way to, to wiggle around it or um, think, oh, if I just do this or uh, wear these things or cut my hair like this or get the tighter sports bra, things will be better. Like, I'll figure it out. You know, I'll learn how to be comfortable. And not only didn't I, I got more and more and more and more uncomfortable. Not that there weren't moments of sort of reprieve, but then it would go back again. I mean, my most enjoyable filmmaking experiences is where I could be the closest sort of uh, to myself, which I guess sounds counterintuitive again, because like, well, you're an actor isn't the point to like depart, but it is movies like Juno where I could Mm -hmm. feel embodied and in my skin the most where I'm like, yeah, that makes sense to me why those performances are better. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And it's what also makes me excited about acting now and moving forward because something does just, of course, feel so different. Yeah. Um, But yeah, no, I really struggled. I mean, it got to the point where I could not wear feminine clothes. Like when I signed on to the Umbrella Academy, it was just like, I'll do it, but I have to be in control of what I wear. Yeah. It's like, I actually can't. I don't know what to tell you. I can't wear these clothes, Mm -hmm. which I get would be very confusing for people. (laughs) It was for me too. When we come back, Elliot Page gives us a behind-the-scenes look at how his Umbrella Academy character, Victor, came to be. More in a minute. I'm curious how your recent work on shows like The Umbrella Academy has been different from your other roles. And what's it been like to integrate your own transition with your character's transition on the show? That was really quite an amazing experience. I feel really lucky for Steve Blackman and just how open and collaborative and wonderful he's been with all of that. And I mean, he really was one of the first people I came out to, which is funny because the third season was not too far off. I was, you know, wanted to get the surgery and called him to basically be like, I really want to do this. Just sort of told him what was going on. And and he was the one that was like, I want to include it and I want to include it now, like this season. And, And then it was just this collaborative work with Steve and Thomas Page McBee, who's an incredible writer. He came on board and we worked together to make that story work in a way that felt natural and organic and not some big dramatic plot line and Victor steps into his truth and they all go back to their lives. Yeah. And so can you tell me a little bit about that phone call with Steve Blackman? Like the first phone call when I told him? Yeah. I was really nervous. Like when I say he was one of the first people I told, like he was amongst the first people I was telling. And if you imagined it versus the actual moment itself— I even kind of rushed through it. Like, I'm yeah, I'm trans. Like, you're probably not surprised, but like I just mm-hmm. really was like just very nervous. And yeah. maybe because he's not someone who's been my 
you know, close friend for a decade. You know, it must be it's scary like, in like a professional context. Yeah, of course. Of course. Yeah. And like, what's his reaction going to be? And, but yeah, he was so loving and didn't hesitate mm-hmm. to include it and support me. So you're one of the most famous out trans men right now at a time of increasing political hostility towards trans people, particularly in this country, although all over the world. Why do you think the right wing is using trans issues as such a lightning rod right now? Well, I guess for them right now, it's it's working. You know, they're using it as a weapon and a political tool to scare people, to distract people from very real issues that do need to be addressed. You know, saying the very similar things that I mean, a lot of people still say about, you know, cis queer people back in the 80s and 90s, et cetera, like, Oh no, should they be in changing rooms? Should they be teachers? Should they be, you know, it's right. it's the same recycled narratives and rhetoric. And it's fear-mongering because that's what they do. And why people seem to have such an issue with us, especially because not that it should matter, but we're also just such a small 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 percentage of the population. I can't wrap my head around it, especially when, you know, we are seeing the real life implications of these horrific bills being passed, of rise in violence, people losing their health care. It's pretty yeah. devastating. I don't think, yeah, people realize the degree of, of consequences, like the ripple effects of, of this hatred. Yeah. So I'm curious, you know, in this context, what does activism look like for you? I mean, like, I'm curious what you see as your role, given the political context we're in right now where trans rights are so under attack. Well, um, gosh, my role. Well, in many ways, it's always important to say that, obviously, my experience as a trans person does not reflect the majority of trans people's experiences, like— in regards to the privilege that I have, the resources I have, the healthcare that I have access to that so many do not, already didn't, or are losing. Trans people disproportionately deal with unemployment, experience homelessness, incarceration, violence, and this is particularly Black trans women. And so for me, I suppose right now, I need to use my platform and use my privilege in ways that hopefully can help and whatever way possible. You know, the sort of visibility part of it gets so complicated because visibility, I think, is important. It's crucial. People need to see themselves. Um, And also it leads to backlash Mm -hmm. towards those who are the most vulnerable in the community, which are Black trans women, who are also the reason why I and queer people have the rights that we do have, who are fought the hardest for our rights and resisted. And so I feel like my role is to use my platform and privilege in in the best way that I can. You know, people who are activists and organizers every single day, like I do think that's that's like a very different thing. And so, you know, just want to be mindful of that and like the use of the word activist and whatnot. I mean... You have people whose lives are just absolutely dedicated to that work and who sacrifice a lot for that work. But I think right now the reality is, is 
whether I like it or not, like it's just existing is politicized, you Mm -hmm. know, posting a selfie can cause, you know, this hateful response and, um, personal is political. Exactly. And I think, you know, obviously trans bodies have always been politicized Mm -hmm. right now, um, especially. So I want to talk big picture for a second. I'm curious, who do you want to read this book and what do you hope they take away from it? I mean, of course, I hope everybody reads the book. And I think, you know, whether you're trans or queer, straight or cis or, you know, what have you, you know, we're all dealing with the same pressures and toxic expectations and being told to get in a box and not get out, essentially. Right. But I guess for me, knowing how much others, particularly trans and queer people who've shared their stories have helped me is, I hope maybe if people are struggling in any kind of a similar way, can feel less alone, can feel seen, know that the voice inside of their head that others have it too. And that it can be painful and and difficult to get to our truth, to find our authentic selves, but it's so worth it in the end. Mm -hmm. It's so worth it in the end. So we're going to do a section of the show called The Last Time. So don't worry. Um, so, full disclosure, this is a little bit of a leading question because you mentioned in your book that you love these. When's the last time you were on a roller coaster? Oh, God, just a couple weeks ago. Yeah. I love roller coasters. So why do you like roller coasters so much? Because they're fun. <laughs> and when I say I lo- love roller coasters, I love roller coasters. To me, it's like the ultimate letting go sensation. Mm-hmm. And I love the thrill of it. I... I I find them very joyful. I feel so much joy on them. Like I think for me, it's uh, maybe it it was a way to escape uh, in in some way hmm. to get out of your body for a second. Yeah, yeah. Um, when's the last time you went to a hockey game? Oh, good question. I mean, last season I went to a Rangers game, but that was quite a while ago in the season. So yeah, this last hockey season. Um, when's the last time you listened to a song on repeat? I mean, I said it in the interview, actually, Go Home by Angel Olsen. So, I mean, that's been sort of on repeat this last while, really. Yeah. Yeah. And when's the last time you found a great outfit? I mean, I guess a couple days ago when I was, you know, getting spoiled with clothes and styled for things, you know. But it's it's like cheating because I get, you know, other people make me... Look like I have some sort of sense of style. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> When's the last time you danced? Last night. <laughs> At your book launch? After. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. yeah. Um, Elliot, thank you so much for being here. It's an amazing book, and I really enjoyed this conversation. And thank you for thank you for opening up to us. It, it just it really means a lot. So thank you. Well, thanks so much for having me. Appreciate it. Elliot Page's memoir, Page Boy, is on shelves now. And we here at Person of the Week have put together a short playlist of some of the incredible music we talked about in this episode. You can find it on our show page at time.com slash person of the week. 
And thank you for listening to Person of the Week. We have an incredible season ahead, so don't forget to subscribe to our show wherever you get your podcasts. And we'd really love to hear from you. Send us your tips or thoughts on our show to personoftheweek at time.com. Person of the Week is hosted by Charlotte Alter. It's produced by Nina Bisbano and India Witkin. Our senior producer is Ursula Summer. Our story editor is Katie Feather. This episode was mixed by Bob Mallory. Our theme music was composed by Billy Libby. Joseph Frischmith is our fact checker. Person of the Week is a co-production of Time Studios and Sugar 23. At Time, our executive producers are Mike Beck and Sam Jacobs. At Sugar 23, our executive producers are Mike Mayer, Michael Sugar, and Liam Billingham. Sasha Mathias is the executive producer of Audio at Time. You can find us online at time.com slash person of the week and wherever you get your podcasts.